Welcome. It's good to see everybody here. Um, new people connect. If you are new to Oceanside Sanctuary, we would love to connect with you. Uh, you can fill out the contact information by scanning the QR code and let us know more about yourself. And also, if you've been coming and you haven't done that yet, it would be great for you to connect. Uh, Journey to Easter devotional. Now that Lent has begun, we'll be going through a new devotional called Journey to Easter together. Every year, the Disciples Seminary Foundation puts together a new devotional which features diverse voices from our wider denomination, Disciples of Christ. This year highlights a reflection from our very own Reverend Jason Coker. Yay. You can download the PDF for free at dsf.edu slash Lent 2022. Call and response Thursday, March 24th at 6.30 is a Zoom. Want a safe place to talk about the Bible? Call and response is our monthly group scripture study that approaches Bible study as a dialogue. This is a chance to ask questions, probe deeper, and bring your insights to the scriptures that we're talking about on Sunday mornings. RSVP at OceansideSanctuary.org slash calendar to get the Zoom link. And also, how to support our mission. Oceanside Sanctuary is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we rely on the gifts and donations of people just like you. If you'd like to support our mission, consider giving a gift today at our website at oceansidesanctuary.org give. You can scan the QR code, and there's also a donation box in the back. Thank you so much, and enjoy the rest of the service. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you. Leanne McInerney, ladies and gentlemen, give her a hand. <laughs> well, that was nice. Thank you. Are we dismissing children? Are we? Yeah, we are going to dismiss okay. kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I kind of just like the little flourish every time I say something. Right. If you could just give me a little. This is great. It's like being the main character in a movie. We are going to dismiss the kids, so let's go ahead and say a prayer for them. They've already gone. Well, if you're new, welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary, where it's total chaos at all times. For those of you who don't know, I'm Jason. I'm the pastor here, and uh, we're going to continue our series on wisdom today. We are almost done, I promise. We've been doing this for about two and a half months now. We started out with the book of Proverbs and then transitioned into Job, and we just entered into the book of Ecclesiastes last week. And last week, after introducing the book of Ecclesiastes and essentially saying with the author of Ecclesiastes that all of life is a lot like the breath that you exhale that doesn't last more than a second and is therefore relatively meaningless... That is what I said last week, something along those lines. Uh, promptly went out to lunch with a couple from the church, and the wife said to me over lunch, where's the good news, Jason? <laughs> I kept waiting for you to say something like uplifting or encouraging, and I said, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, this is Ecclesiastes. There's really not much by way of good news here. And, you know, I said that to her because, like, that's how I am, right? Like, I'm just sort of contrary like that. Um, but I promise, I promise we are getting to good news in Ecclesiastes. 
but it might be more accurate to say that it's sort of good, comma, but difficult news. Uh, and I think one of the problems that we encounter in religious spaces is that we want to do away with the difficult part. Uh, we want to jump right to the happy, fun, encouraging, uplifting part, which of course I understand because life is difficult enough. Who wants to come to church on Sunday and be reminded that life is difficult? Um, but I think that is one of the treasures of our tradition, uh, that the Christian tradition and that the Jewish tradition out of which Christianity was birthed contain incredibly deep, important wrestlings with the difficulties of life. And we're not honest about that, then we are denying ourselves the fullness of what is good news. And so today, I have a bit of good, comma, but difficult news to share with you as we dig a little deeper into Ecclesiastes. Does that sound okay? All right, if you want to take me out to lunch today, that's all right. <laughs> but just know that if that was the reason, I can just tell you now it's okay. You don't have to, you don't have to do that. Would you just say a prayer with me as we jump into the text today? We're going to visit a few passages uh, and, and then I'll do my very best to wrap it up with some kind of point. God, we thank you so much for today. We ask that you would continue to draw us closer to a sense of uh, your goodness and your wisdom. We ask that as we wade into the deeper waters of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, that you would help us to keep sight of the bigger picture that you would help us to, uh, to engage a little bit deeper in the truths about life and life's challenges and difficulties and uh, the difficulties of not being able to completely explain who you are or how you work in the midst of uh, so much suffering and pain and we ask that you would help us to be people of courage and faith in spite of those difficulties. We ask that the words of Ecclesiastes would help us down that road today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes, uh, like I said last week, picks up where Job left off. Job, of course, is that sort of difficult book that disrupts our ideas of wisdom. It uh, says that Life cannot be controlled, that life is bigger than a sort of transaction that involves getting good things if we behave in good ways, that Job comes along and sort of throws a wrench in that overly simplistic idea that if you are a good person and follow the rules and work hard, that good things will come your way. And at the end of Job, we said that the answer in the book of Job to the question, What's the point of being good if being good doesn't guarantee a good life? That the answer to that question was, that's the wrong question. That's really not the point. We need to instead sort of zoom out and take a look at the bigger picture of life that we need to learn how to recognize the beauty and the complexity of life and embrace all of life for what it is which is all fine and good, except that Solomon, who is sort of 
traditionally attributed as the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon picks up that exact perspective. He looks at the bigger picture of life. He zooms out, so to speak, and examines all of life. And instead of asking, what's the point of being good? Solomon then asks, what's the point of life at all? This is the trouble with looking at the big picture is that when you look at the big picture, you find there are still more challenges. And so today we're going to jump into how Solomon in Ecclesiastes begins to answer this question, what is the point of life? But before Solomon answers it, he's going to present us with a few of the problems that he discovers. And that's helpful, but it does add to the difficulty. So before we get to this passage that you see up on the screen, I want to sort of build towards that by reading to you from a couple of earlier passages. So we can go ahead and leave that on the screen. But before we get there, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the author says this. Now remember, this is after the author's opening poem that basically says all of life is like the breath that we exhale, that it is vain or meaningless or pointless or futile, that it disappears as quickly as it comes. After that, Solomon says in chapter 2, verse 1, so I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So Solomon has responded to this bigger problem. Like, what is the point of life? If life can't be counted on to be just and fair, then what's it all about? Solomon responds to that problem the very same way that a lot of us respond to that problem, and that is to throw himself into the pursuit of pleasure. If life is meaningless, then I ought to at least enjoy it as much as I possibly can. He throws himself into a life of pleasure that he says later on denies himself nothing. That is, of course, a very common response that humans make to this bigger existential question. He continues, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. And I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem." I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh and many concubines. And here it becomes obvious that Solomon is rather wealthy. Solomon really has the means to pursue whatever pleasures he wants. In fact, one of the interesting things about Ecclesiastes is that in his pursuit of wisdom, to really understand what life is all about, Solomon is sort of the anti-Job. Job is somebody 
who had everything taken away and having everything removed from him, had to ask what the point of life was if he couldn't enjoy it. Solomon, on the other hand, is given literally everything. Solomon has endless wealth, endless power to do whatever he wants, and he does exactly that. He doesn't deny himself any indulgence, any pleasure, And he pursues what we might consider to be noble purposes as well. He builds gardens and parks. He gives himself to the building up of his civilization around him. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasures, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then, chapter 2, verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity, a chasing after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon is that character from history who had everything. Everything that we desire, everything that we say we want, everything that we might now call today the American dream. Endless riches, endless loves, endless properties, the ability to do whatever he wanted to do, and he exercised that. And at the end of that, he said, I've decided that all of it is pointless. Solomon has the ability to do what none of us ever will, and that is whatever he wants. And yet, he concludes, all of it is pointless. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, well, I'd love that opportunity. I mean, maybe you just didn't indulge yourself in the right way. I I tend to think like I could do it better if I had endless riches, Whenever somebody says, you know, money won't make you happy, my response is, well, let me try. I'd like to fail at that. But I'll probably never get that chance. Because money's not that important to me. If it were, I wouldn't be pastoring a church. Or my friends friends often tease me that there's great money in religion, so I must be doing it wrong. And it's true. (laughs) It's hard to turn on the TV and not see some preacher in a private jet. So, I don't know. Maybe I need to figure that out. Solomon, however, has done it for us. And he gives us, I think, a real gift in this book by telling us why it is that the pursuit of pleasure and power are actually useless or meaningless or vain. We begin to see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18. By the way, for those of you who are interested in reading through the book of Ecclesiastes on your own, or perhaps you've done it, you might notice that Ecclesiastes does not follow a logical order. This is a kind of discourse, a kind of uh, stream of consciousness preaching. And so Solomon goes back and forth and tackles one subject, engages with it, and then switches to another one. So we're going to stick with this question of power and pleasure and why it is 
that it seems to be meaningless. The first clue that we see is chapter 2, verse 18, when it says this, I hated all my toil. That is, I hated all the work of my hands in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish. Yet they will be the master of all that I toiled for and used my wisdom for under the sun. This also is vanity. The first hint that we have that everything that we do in this life might be meaningless is that Solomon reckons with the reality of his death. I will work and work all my life to do all of these great things, and yet someday I'm going to die. And when I die... Who knows who will get my stuff? Who knows who will get this empire that I have built? And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish? In other words, Solomon is wrestling with his legacy. What is the point of all of this if it just goes to one of my children and they turn out to be a fool? And everything that I have spent my life for becomes nothing. Why have I done it? This is something important that I think we all have to reckon with, the reality of our mortality. Why do we do what we do if we're only here for a brief amount of time, if our whole life is that, like that wisp of breath that we exhale? What's it all for? And I think that that leads us to Solomon's next point, which is, Important enough that we put this passage up on the screen. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6, Solomon continues with this line of reasoning. He says, There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy upon humankind. Those to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing of all they desire. Now again, he's talking about himself, right? Yet God does not enable them to enjoy these things, but a stranger enjoys them. Again, Solomon is reckoning with his own death. He has worked so hard to accomplish so much, and yet somebody else is going to come along and take it. And he says, this is vanity. It is a grievous ill. A man may beget a hundred children and live many years, but however many are the days of his years, he does not enjoy life's good things or has burial. And I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. This sounds a lot like Job. Solomon is reckoning with the reality of his own death and the idea that somebody else is going to come along and screw up everything that he's worked for. And he says, it would be better to not live than to have to suffer that kind of loss. I know, stark stuff. Verse 4, for it comes into vanity and goes into darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. He's talking about that stillborn child. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, and yet it finds rest rather than he. And even though he should live a thousand years, again, Solomon's talking about himself, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place, all go to that same place which is death. Then verse 7, which is, I think, sort of the gut punch of Ecclesiastes. All human toil is for the mouth, 
and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Solomon tells us that the problem with life is that we die. But perhaps even more problematic is that while we are alive, while we're still here, we desire. And those desires can never be satisfied. All that we do, all that we work for, all that we strive for, all that we struggle for is simply to fill that bottomless pit of desires that never goes satisfied. And that is perhaps the most depressing thing about life. And no matter how much we shove more and more and more into the emptiness of our stomachs, our stomachs still want more. I love how Eric Fromm puts this. He says, greed is a bottomless pit which exhausts the person in an endless effort to satisfy the need without ever reaching satisfaction. Greed is a bottomless pit. What Solomon has done for us is he has pursued the filling of that bottomless pit, and he is reporting back to you and I that it will never be filled. No matter how noble you think your pursuits are, no matter how much you rationalize your hard work, you are chasing something that can never be caught. And you'll be trapped on an endless treadmill of want and desire and consumption to the point where no matter how much you have, and here I think is really the insight of Solomon on this point. No matter how much you have, your endless pursuit of the bottomless pit of desire will guarantee that you can't enjoy what you have. This is the reason why Solomon is so frustrated. He has everything, but he can't enjoy it because he is endlessly obsessed with getting more and more and more. Our entire economy is built on that. Is it ever enough? Some of you know this, but uh, you know one of the things that uh, my wife Janelle does is estate sales. She manages estate sales. And I cannot tell you how many times I have gone to help her inspect a new property for her to manage an estate sale, and I am just like blown away by the endless piles of stuff that people have in their homes when they die. This last weekend, Janelle managed an estate sale, and it was just like mind-boggling. In addition to the house just being full of you know, incredible piles of tools and toys and games and books and clothes and equipment and technology. In addition to that, as if it weren't enough, this person had two tractor trailers parked on his lawn that was also full of more stuff. And as if that weren't bad enough, Janelle runs the estate sale, right? It opens at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning 
And at 7 a.m., the people start arriving and they begin to gather at the bottom of the driveway in a crowd. And there's a kind of like salivating fever pitch that begins to arise until about eight o'clock when Janelle says, okay, we're open. And they all run as though they're contestants in the amazing race. And they begin to like just gather things into piles in the driveway because that's like their stuff that they're holding. And as we're doing this, and by the way, I'm looking through this stuff too. I'm like, I don't know, like this is a box of rusty tools that I think I really need. And as I'm like, because I'm helping her on this particular uh, estate sale, because it was a lot and it was confined to one day. And so we were trying to like get it all done in one day. And as I was standing there towards the end of our day, I was talking to this gentleman, a really nice man, probably in his late 60s. And he has a pretty big pile of stuff that he's about to buy. And it's about a 15 acre property. So he's there for about six hours walking the entire property. You know, the property that has tractor trailers full of stuff. And piles of like, you know, old farm equipment and the glass canopy of a jet fighter, you know, on the property and like just all kinds of crazy things. And I'm talking to him and I'm asking him, what are you going to do with that esoteric piece of equipment that you just put into your pile? And he says, oh, that'll go probably on the second story of my barn, which is just full of stuff like this. And it occurred to me There's like a half a dozen people there, and all they're really doing is shifting the stuff from one property to the next. And at some time in the next few years, Janelle could very well be managing his estate sale, and we will be selling the same stuff to a whole new crop of people. Human desire is a bottomless pit that can never be satisfied. This is, I think, Solomon's first gift to us in this book. The insatiable desire for power robs us of the ability to enjoy what we have. And that insatiable desire is really our mask for a fear of death. Solomon shows us in this first discourse, this wrestling with mortality, that it is the realization of our mortality, the realization of our death that tends to lead us to pursue more and more at all costs. That our desire for power and pleasure and things is really just a fig leaf for our fear of dying. So the answer to that is, Not so much to consume less, although that's probably a good idea. The answer is for us to reckon with our own mortality. We are going to die. And when we die, there is no guarantee that what we did while we were here will be remembered. There is no guarantee that whoever takes over our our stuff will manage it wisely or well. And again, I know that that doesn't sound like good news, but I promise you 
It is. Coming to terms with your mortality and your death is good news. And until you reckon with it, until you reckon with your own death, you will be enslaved to your own desires. BTW, that's what Lent is all about. Right? From dust we came, and to dust we shall return. Until we make peace with that, there is no real wisdom or pleasure or power in this life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for today. We ask you uh, to be with us in these uh, readings and in these reckonings with the harder questions about life. God, we pray that as we uh, read these verses and as we reckon with these questions, that you would give us the courage to ask and wrestle with uh, difficult questions about our faith and our lives and the way that we pursue our own desires, the way that we exercise whatever power we have. We ask that you would give us freedom from the fear that we're running from when we indulge in our desires. And that that freedom, that liberation from fear would enable us to genuinely enjoy life. We pray that you give us the courage to uh, pursue that. And we thank you for revealing these things to us in these words. We pray this in Jesus' name.